Chapter Fifteen, Part Two of Industrial Biography, Iron Workers and Toolmakers by Samuel Smiles. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Clive Catterall. James Naismith, Part Two. The hammer was left to bide its time. No forge master would take it up. The inventor wrote to all the great firms urging its superiority to every other tool for working malleable iron into all kinds of forge-work. Thus he wrote and sent illustrative sketches of his hammer to Ackermans and Morgan of Bristol, to the late Benjamin Hick and Rushton and Eckersley of Bolton, to Howard and Ravenhill of Rotherhithe and other firms. But unhappily bad times for the iron trade had set in, and although all to whom he communicated his design were much struck by its simplicity and obvious advantages, the answer usually given was, We have not orders enough to keep in work the forge hammers we already have, and we do not desire at present to add any new ones, however improved. At that time no patent had been taken out for the invention. Mr. Naismith had not yet saved money enough to enable him to do so on his own account, and his partner declined to spend money upon a tool that no engineer would give the firm an order for. No secret was made of the invention and excepting to its owner it did not seem to be worth one farthing. Such was the unpromising state of affairs when Monsieur Schneider of the Crusoe Ironworks in France called at the Patricroft Works together with his practical mechanic, Monsieur Bourdon, for the purpose of ordering some tools of the firm. Mr. Naismith was absent on a journey at the time, but his partner, Mr. Gaskell, as an act of courtesy to the strangers, took the opportunity of showing them all that was new and interesting in regard to mechanism about the works. And among other things, Mr. Gaskill brought out his partner's sketch or scheme-book, which lay in a drawer in the office, and showed them the design of the steam-hammer, which no English firm would adopt. They were much struck with its simplicity and practical utility, and Monsieur Bourdon took careful note of its arrangements. Mr. Naismith, on his return, was informed of the visit of Messrs. Schneider and Bourdon, but the circumstance of their having inspected the design of his steam-hammer seems to have been regarded by his partner as too trivial a matter to be repeated to him, and he knew nothing of the circumstance until his visit to France in April 1840. When passing through the works at Crusoe with Monsieur Bourdon, Mr. Naismith saw a crankshaft of unusual size, not only forged in the piece, but punched. He immediately asked, How did you forge that shaft? Monsieur Bourdon's answer was, Why, with your hammer, to be sure. Great indeed was Naismith's surprise, for he had never yet seen the hammer, except in his own drawing. A little explanation soon cleared all up. Monsieur Bourdon said he had been so much struck with the ingenuity and simplicity of the arrangement, that he had no sooner returned than he had set to work and had a hammer made in general accordance with the design Mr. Gaskell had shown him, and that its performance had answered his every expectation. He then took Mr. Naismith to see the steam-hammer, and great was his delight at seeing the child of his brain in full and active work. It was not, according to Mr. Naismith's idea, quite perfect, and he readily suggested several improvements, conformable with the original design, which Mr. Bourdon forthwith adopted. On reaching England, Mr. Naismith at once wrote to his partner, telling him what he had seen, 
and urging that the taking out of a patent for the protection of the invention ought no longer to be deferred. But trade was still very much depressed, and, as the Patricroft firm needed all their capital to carry on their business, Mr. Gaskell objected to lock up any of it in engineering novelties. Seeing himself on the brink of losing his property in the invention, Mr. Naismith applied to his brother-in-law, William Bennett, Esquire, who advanced him the requisite money for the purpose, about £280, and the patent was secured in June 1840. The first hammer of thirty hundredweight was made for the Patricroft works, with the consent of the partners, and in the course of a few weeks it was in full work. The precision and beauty of its action, the perfect ease with which it was managed, and the untiring force of its percussive blows, were the admiration of all who saw it and from that moment the steam-hammer became a recognised power in modern mechanics. The variety or gradation of its blows was such that it was found practicable to manipulate a hammer of ten tons as easily as if it had only been of ten ounces weight. It was under such complete control that while descending with its greatest momentum it could be arrested at any point with even greater ease than any instrument used by hand. While capable of forging an armstrong hundred-pounder or the sheet-anchor for a ship of the line, it could hammer a nail, or crack a nut without bruising the kernel. When it came into general use, the facilities which it afforded for executing all kinds of forging had the effect of greatly increasing the quantity of work done, at the same time that expense was saved. The cost of making anchors was reduced by at least fifty per cent, while the quality of the forging was improved. Before its invention, the manufacture of a shaft of fifteen or twenty hundredweight required the concentrated exertions of a large establishment, and its successful execution was regarded as a great triumph of skill, whereas forgings of twenty or thirty tons weight are now things of almost everyday occurrence. Its advantages were so obvious that its adoption soon became general, and in the course of a few years Naismith steam-hammers were to be found in every well-appointed workshop both at home and abroad. Many modifications have been made in the tool by Condy, Morrison, Naylor, Rigby, and others, but Naismith's was the father of them all, and still holds its ground. Among the important uses to which this hammer has of late been applied is the manufacture of iron plates for covering the ships of war, and the fabrication of the immense wrought-iron ordnance of Armstrong, Whitworth, and Blakely. But for the steam-hammer, indeed, it is doubtful whether such weapons could have been made. It is also used for the remanufacture of iron in various other forms, to say nothing of the greatly extended use which it has been the direct means of effecting in wrought iron and steel forgings in every description of machinery, from the largest marine steam-engines to the most nice and delicate parts of textile mechanism. It is not too much to say, observes a writer in The Engineer, that without Naismith's steam-hammer we must have stopped short in many of those gigantic engineering works which, but for the decay of all wonder in us, would be the perpetual wonder of this age, and which have enabled our modern engineers to take rank above the gods of all mythologies. There is one use to which the steam-hammer is now becoming extensively applied by some of our manufacturers that deserves especial mention, rather for the prospect which it opens to us than for what has already actually been accomplished. We allude to the manufacture of large articles in dyes. 
At one manufactory in the country, railway wheels, for example, are being manufactured with enormous economy by this means. The various parts of the wheels are produced in quantity, either by rolling or by dies under the hammer. These parts are brought together in their relative positions in a mould, heated to a welding heat, and then by a blow of the steam hammer furnished with dies, are stamped into a complete and all but finished wheel. It is evident that wherever wrought-iron articles of a manageable size have to be produced in considerable quantities, the same process may be adopted, and the saving effected by the substitution of this for the ordinary forging process will doubtless, ere long, prove incalculable. For this, as for the many other advantageous uses of the steam hammer, we are primarily and mainly indebted to Mr. Naismith. It is right, therefore, that we should hold his name in honour. In fact, when we think of the universal service which this machine is rendering us, we feel that some special expression of our indebtedness to him would be a reasonable and grateful service. The benefit which he has conferred upon us is so great as to justly entitle him to stand side by side with the few men who have gained name and fame as great inventive engineers, and to whom we have testified our gratitude, usually unhappily, when it was too late for them to enjoy it. Mr. Naismith subsequently applied the principle of the steam-hammer in the pile-driver, which he invented in 1845. Until its production, all piles had been driven by means of a small mass of iron falling upon the head of the pile with great velocity from a considerable height, the raising of the iron mass by means of the monkey being an operation that occupied much time and labour, with which the results were very incommensurate. Pile-driving was, in Mr. Naismith's words, conducted on the artillery or cannon-ball principle, the action being excessive and the mass deficient, and adapted rather for destructive than impulsive action. In his new and beautiful machine he applied the elastic force of steam in raising the ram or driving-block, on which, the block being disengaged, its whole weight of three tons descended on the head of the pile the process being repeated eighty times in a minute. The pile was sent home with a rapidity that was quite marvellous compared with the old-fashioned system. In forming coffer-dams for the piers and abutments of bridges, quays and harbours, and in piling the foundations of all kinds of masonry, the steam pile-driver was found of invaluable use by the engineer. As the first experiment made with the machine, Mr. Naismith drove a fourteen-inch pile fifteen feet into hard ground, at a rate of sixty-five blows a minute. The driver was first used in forming the great steam-dock at Davenport, where the results were very striking. It was shortly after employed by Robert Stevenson in piling the foundations of the great high-level bridge at Newcastle, and the border bridge at Berwick, as well as in several other of his great works. The saving of time effected by this machine was very remarkable, the rate being one to one thousand eight hundred. That is, a pile could be driven in four minutes that before required twelve hours. One of the peculiar features of the invention was that of employing the pile itself as the support of the steam-hammer part of the apparatus while it was being driven, so that the pile had the percussive action of the dead weight of the hammer as well as its lively blows to induce it to sink into the ground. The steam-hammer sat, as it were, on the shoulders of the pile, while it dealt forth its ponderous blows on the pile-head at the rate of eighty a minute, and as the pile sank, 
the hammer followed it down with never relaxing activity until it was driven home to the required depth. One of the most ingenious contrivances employed in the driver, which was also adopted in the hammer, was the use of steam as a buffer in the upper part of the cylinder, which had the effect of a recoil spring and greatly enhanced the force of the downward blow. In 1846 Mr. Naismith designed a form of steam engine after that of his steam hammer, which has been extensively adopted all over the world for screw ships of all size. The pyramidal form of the engine, and its great simplicity and get-at-ability of parts, together with the circumstance that all the weighty parts of the engine are kept low, have rendered it a universal favourite. Among the other labour-saving tools invented by Mr. Naismith, may be mentioned the well-known planing machine for small work, called Naismith's steam-arm, now used in every large workshop. It was contrived for the purpose of executing a large order for locomotives received from the Great Western Railway, and was found of great use in accelerating the work, especially in planing the links, levers, connecting rods, and smaller kinds of wrought-iron work in those engines. His circular cutter for toothed wheels was another of his handy inventions, which shortly came into general use. In iron founding also he introduced a valuable practical improvement. The old mode of pouring the molten metal into the moulds was by means of a large ladle with one or two cross-handles and levers, but many dreadful accidents occurred through a slip of the hand, and Mr. Naismith resolved, if possible, to prevent them. The plan he adopted was to fix a worm-wheel on the side of the ladle, into which a worm was geared, and by this simple contrivance one man was enabled to move the largest ladle on its axis with perfect ease and safety. By this means the work was more promptly performed, and accidents entirely avoided. Mr. Naismith's skill in invention was backed by great energy and a large fund of common sense, qualities not often found united. These proved of much service to the concern of which he was the head, indeed constituted the vital force. The firm prospered as it deserved, and they executed orders not only for England, but for most countries in the civilised world. Mr. Naismith had the advantage of being trained in a good school, that of Henry Maudsley, where he had not only learnt handicraft under the eye of that great mechanic, but the art of organising labour, and, what is of great value to an employer, knowledge of the character of workmen. Yet the Naismith firm were not without their troubles as respected the mechanics in their employment, and on one occasion they had to pass through the ordeal of a very formidable strike. The manner in which the inventor of the steam-hammer literally scotched this strike was very characteristic. A clever young man, employed by the firm as a brass-founder, being found to have a peculiar capacity for skilled mechanical work, had been advanced to the lathe. The other men objected to his being so employed, on the ground that it was against the rules of the trade. "'But he is a first-rate workman,' replied the employers, "'and we think it right to advance a man according to his conduct and his merits.' "'No matter,' said the workman. "'It is against the rules, and if you do not take the man from the lathe, we must turn out.' "'Very well.' We hold to our right of selecting the best men for the best places, and we will not take the man from the lathe. The consequence was a general turnout. Pickets were set about the works, 
and any stray men who went thither to seek employment were waylaid, and if not induced to turn back, were maltreated or annoyed until they were glad to leave. The works were almost at a standstill. This state of things could not be allowed to go on, and the head of the firm bestirred himself accordingly with his usual energy. He went down to Scotland, searched all the best mechanical workshops there, and after a time succeeded in engaging sixty-four good hands. He forbade them coming by driblets, but held them together until there was a full freight, and then they came, with their wives, families, chest of drawers and eight-day clocks, in a steamboat specially hired for their transport from Greenock to Liverpool. From thence they came by special train to Patricroft, where houses were in readiness for their reception. The arrival of so numerous, well-dressed and respectable a corps of workmen and their families was an event in the neighbourhood, and could not fail to strike the pickets with surprise. Next morning the sixty-four Scotchmen assembled in the yard at Patricroft, and after giving three cheers went quietly to their work. The picketing went on for a little while longer, but it was of no use against a body of strong men who stood shoulder to shoulder, as the new hands did. It was even bruited about that there were more trains to follow. It very soon became clear that the back of the strike was broken. The men returned to their work, and the clever brass founder continued at his turning lathe, from which he speedily rose to still higher employment. Notwithstanding the losses and suffering occasioned by strikes, Mr. Naismith holds the opinion that they have, on the whole, produced much more good than evil. They have served to stimulate invention in an extraordinary degree. Some of the most important labour-saving processes now in common use are directly traceable to them. In the case of many of our most potent self-acting tools and machines, manufacturers could not be induced to adopt them until compelled to do so by strikes. This was the case with the self-acting mule, the wool-combing machine, the planing machine, the slotting machine, Naismith's steam-arm, and many others. Thus, even in the mechanical world, they may be a soul of goodness in things evil. Mr. Naismith retired from business in December 1856. He had the moral courage to come out of the groove which he had so laboriously made for himself, and to leave a large and prosperous business, saying, I have now enough of this world's goods. Let younger men have their chance. He settled down at his rural retreat in Kent, but not to lead a life of idle ease. Industry had become his habit, and active occupation was necessary to his happiness. He fell back upon the cultivation of those artistic tastes which are the heritage of his family. When a boy at the high school of Edinburgh, he was so skilful in making pen and ink illustrations on the margins of the classics, that he thus often purchased from his monitors exemptions from the lessons of the day. Nor had he ceased to cultivate the art during his residence at Patricroft, but was accustomed to fall back upon it for relaxation and enjoyment amid the pursuits of the trade. That he possesses remarkable fertility of imagination, and great skill in architectural and landscape drawing, as well as in the much more difficult art of delineating the human figure, will be obvious to anyone who has seen his works, more particularly his City of St. Anne's, The Fairies, and Everybody Forever, which last was exhibited in Pall Mall, among the recent collections of works of art by amateurs and others for the relief of the Lancashire distress.
he has also brought his common sense to bear on such unlikely subjects as the origin of the cuneiform character. The possession of a brick from Babylon set him thinking. How had it been manufactured? Its underside was clearly marked by the sedges of the Euphrates, upon which it had been laid to dry and bake in the sun. But how about those curious cuneiform characters? How had writing assumed so remarkable a form? His surmise was this, that the brickmakers, in telling their tale of bricks, used the triangular corner of another brick, and by pressing it down upon the soft clay, left behind it the triangular mark which the cuneiform character exhibits. Such marks repeated, and placed in different relations to each other, would readily represent any number. From the use of the corner of a brick in writing, the transition was easy to a pointed stick with a triangular end by the use of which all the cuneiform characters can readily be produced upon the soft clay. This curious question formed the subject of an interesting paper read by Mr. Naismith before the British Association at Cheltenham. But the most engrossing of Mr. Naismith's later pursuits has been the science of astronomy, in which, by bringing a fresh original mind to the observation of celestial phenomena, he has succeeded in making some of the most remarkable discoveries of our time. Astronomy was one of his favourite pursuits at Patricroft, and on his retirement became his serious study. By repeated observations with a powerful reflecting telescope of his own construction, he succeeded in making a very careful and minute painting of the craters, cracks, mountains and valleys of the moon's surface, for which a council medal was awarded him at the Great Exhibition of 1851. But the most striking discovery which he has made by means of a big telescope, the result of patient, continuous and energetic observation, has been that of the nature of the sun's surface, and the character of the extraordinary light-giving bodies, apparently possessed of voluntary action, moving across it, sometimes forming spots or hollows of more than a hundred thousand miles in diameter. The results of these observations were of so novel a character that astronomers for some time hesitated to receive them as facts. Yet so eminent an astronomer as Sir John Herschel does not hesitate now to describe them as a most wonderful discovery. According to Mr. Naismith's observations, says he, made with a very fine telescope of his own making, the bright surface of the sun consists of separate, insulated individual objects or things, all nearly or exactly of one certain definite size and shape which is more like that of a willow-leaf, as he describes them, than anything else. These leaves or scales are not arranged in any order, as those on a butterfly's wing are, but lie crossing one another in all directions, like what are called spills in the game of spillikins, except at the borders of a spot, where they point for the most part inwards towards the middle of the spot, presenting much the sort of appearance that the small leaves of some water-plants or seaweeds do at the edge of a deep hole of clear water. The exceedingly definite shape of these objects, their exact similarity to one another, and the way in which they lie across and athwart each other, except where they form a sort of bridge across a spot, in which case they seem to affect a common direction, namely that of the bridge itself. All these characters seem quite repugnant to the notion of their being of vaporous or cloudy or a fluid nature. Nothing remains but to consider them as separate and independent sheets, flakes or scales, having some sort of solidity, 
and these flakes, be they what they may, and whatever may be said about the dashing of meteoric stones into the sun's atmosphere, etc., are evidently the immediate source of the solar light and heat, by whatever mechanism or whatever processes they may be enabled to develop and, as it were, elaborate these elements from the bosom of the non-luminous fluid in which they appear to float. Looked at in this point of view, we cannot refuse to regard them as organisms of some peculiar and amazing kind, and though it would be too daring to speak of such organization as partaking of the nature of life, yet we do know that vital action is competent to develop heat and light as well as electricity. These wonderful objects have been seen by others as well as Mr. Naismith, so that there is no room for doubt of their reality. Such is the marvellous discovery made by the inventor of the steam-hammer, as described by the most distinguished astronomer of the age. A writer in the Edinburgh Review, referring to the subject in a recent number, says it shows him to possess an intellect as profound as it is expert. Doubtless his training as a mechanic, his habits of close observation and his ready inventiveness, which conferred so much power on him as an engineer, proved of equal advantage to him when labouring in the domain of physical science, bringing a fresh mind of keen perception to his new studies, and uninfluenced by preconceived opinions, he saw them in new and original lights, and hence the extraordinary discovery above described by Sir John Herschel. Some two hundred years since, a member of the Naismith family, Jean Naismith of Hamilton, was burnt for a witch one of the last martyrs to ignorance and superstition in Scotland, because she read her Bible with two pairs of spectacles. Had Mr. Naismith lived then, he might, with his two telescopes of his own making, which bring the sun and moon into his chamber for him to examine and paint, have been taken for a sorcerer. But fortunately for him, and still more so for us, Mr. Naismith stands before the public of this age as not only one of its ablest mechanics, but as one of the most accomplished and original of scientific observers. End of chapter 15